Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I'm joined today by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ryan Shields, an associate professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Hey, Aaron, it's so great to be back, and I just want to take a minute at the beginning of these podcasts to thank everyone that's reached out to us with all the feedback and support. Do you need to mention, if you are listening to this podcast and you are a pharmacist, you can get CE credit. If you are not a pharmacist, hello and welcome, and yay, we're excited to have you. Um, But for pharmacists, CE credits, you can get ACPE credit, or if you're a board-certified infectious diseases pharmacist, you can get BCIDP credit if you go to the SI. DP website, sidp.org backslash podcasts. You can get all of the information there. So Aaron, that's our public service announcement. Let's move on to some of the cool science now. And why don't you start by telling us what were some of the big themes from ID Week that you took away this year? You mean people don't want to just listen to us talk about how they can get CE credit? <laughs> we should talk about science. Perhaps um, we should, yeah. Yes, people want to learn. Okay, so, oh, yay, I love talking about science. Um, so the theme of ID Week this year was, or the ID Week theme is advancing science, improving care. Very simple, very powerful. They completely, honestly, credit to everyone who organized this meeting this year, they completely channeled this message into the meeting, and they did so with an emphasis on vaccines. It was really cool to me, I think to everyone there, to see all the, it's always great to go to a conference, right? You're with all these like-minded people, everyone in the infectious diseases space and all these different disciplines trying to take care of patients and do the best job that we can. Everyone comes together and this year they channeled all of that brain power and all of these passionate individuals to advocate for probably the most important thing right now that we can advocate for, and that is vaccination. There were multiple sessions on vaccines throughout the conference on vaccine-preventable illnesses like measles um, in light of the recent outbreaks in New York and California. And I learned, actually, that vaccine hesitancy, or the people who are refusing vaccinations for many different reasons, is now one of the top 10 threats to global public health that we face today, and that's per the World Health Organization. That is mind-blowing to me. We are refusing in this country free preventable measures that other people literally die for. And we need to understand why to make a difference, right? And so for ID Week to use this platform to spread awareness of this issue was amazing. And I think we'll walk through some of the things that came up. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Aaron. It's it's not only frightening, but just alarming at what is happening with vaccines now. And I think one of the interesting and unique ways that ID Week tried to raise attention to this is they actually put up this giant white wall right outside the, con- the convention hall where it says, why I vaccinate. And they left markers there and they encouraged participants and attendees to come write down their personal messages. And so by the beginning of the meeting, there was nothing on that. Within a day or two, this board was filled, which speaks to how passionate people are about vaccines, particularly at this meeting. But perhaps one of the more iconic pictures that has resulted from this meeting was a picture taken uh, Dr. Edsel Salvana. He's the director of the Institute of Molecular Biology and Biotechnology at the NIH in the Philippines, who stood in front of this wall full of signatures from his colleagues dressed in a black robe with a beaked mask, dressed like a plague doctor. 
Now, if you're unfamiliar with plague doctors are, this was popular in the 17th century because doctors who were seeing patients with the bubonic plague wore these suits with these beaked masks to try and prevent transmission of the bubonic plague. And in fact, in these beaked masks, they put different herbs and plants to try and get rid of the potential contamination from these patients they were taking care of. Now, we realize now where we are with medicine, how silly that was, but it speaks to a very important message of, well, why are we ignoring all the advances we've made in science and vaccines and still not vaccinating patients, which we know is one of the ways of preventing transmissible diseases? Yeah, exactly, Ryan. It was a really powerful image, so powerful, in fact, that Forbes magazine picked up the story and actually ran two different stories on their Forbes online kind of article blogs about the Why I Vaccinate campaign and about ID Week. So it it worked, right? It caught attention. Um, And in the article with Dr. Silvana's picture, he had a quote at the end where he said, we can no longer afford to think that because we are grounded by scientific method, we will win. We are already losing the battle for hearts and minds as evidenced by these outbreaks. And if we don't change strategy, more people will die. And that is so powerful because you said it was silly, but, you know, a lot of people, I guess, don't think it's silly. And so we have to connect with these people to convince them that vaccination is the best thing again. And how how do we kind of bridge that gap? And so one of the kind of out outreaches that ID Week did, not only did they have this campaign at ID Week, but they also did a public service cry, which I think you can tell us a little more about. Yeah, so ID Week is certainly taking advantage of the platform here and the modern platform in our day and age is social media, particularly Twitter. So there was a planned Twitter storm, which again, I'm learning more and more about Twitter every time we do one of these podcasts. But a Twitter storm is this unified collection of people that all tweet at the same time. And the message this year was, why I vaccinate? And so we saw hundreds, if not thousands of people from the meeting all tweeting at the same time why they vaccinate. And in fact, this hashtag became the number one trending hashtag in Washington, D.C., the number five hashtag in the United States at that time, and a top 25 trending hashtag across the world on this particular day. Truly amazing and speaks to the advocacy that one group can have when they get their collective minds together and use the platforms that are available to them. Yeah, I think social media increasingly, I I saw this actually on social media. I forget who exactly pointed this out, but one of the best things is how social media can level medical hierarchies. So we're communicating with attending physicians and attending pharmacists and microbiologists and all these amazing people in the field and trainees and students can start to engage and meet these people early on. It changes the vibe of these meetings because when you come to the meeting, you feel like you know people already before you even gotten there, before you even met them in person. Then when you see them at the meeting, the conversations are way more open, interactions are substantial, there's follow-up, we're engaging in research collaborations, and we're able to have these very important conversations like how do we advocate for vaccination. It levels hierarchies to our patients, too, and to the community, so it makes us relatable, and we can get this message out there. I thought that was really awesome. Um, But back to this vaccine focus, I actually, we're I just realized we're doing this, but we're starting the podcast with the closing plenary of the meeting, which is okay. So we're starting with the end of the meeting. Um, But again, this vaccine content was peppered throughout the meeting, but the closing session was titled All About Vaccines, the Individual, the Community, and the World. And the session kicked off with Dr. Peter Holtz, who was named recently one of the most influential people in healthcare. 
Um, he is a pediatrician and a physician scientist, and he has a daughter with autism. And he recently wrote a book titled Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. And this, I, I honestly, particularly spoke to my heart um, because I actually, my older brother is is autistic. And my family is obviously a huge advocate for vaccines. In fact, my mom texts me like every August 1st and is like, did you get your vaccine yet? Your dad and I just got our vaccines. <laughs> I'm like, I'm very proud of you, mom. Um, and so they're awesome. And so, but this is, you know, this, this hits home for a lot of people. And so, um, so he wrote this book in response to the measles outbreak across America, in addition to the increasing childhood deaths we're seeing from influenza, which is likely secondary to how less and less people in general are getting vaccinated. And then also the poor uptake of the Gardasil or the cervical cancer vaccine. And so kind of these three things combined, really the measles outbreak kind of pushed him over the edge to write this book. And Many of you are familiar with this story, but let's frame this vaccines, autism, and vaccine hesitancy thing for our audience. So most of us are familiar with this, but in 1998, a paper was published in The Lancet that claimed that the live measles, mumps, rubella, the MMR vaccine, but particularly the measles component, might lead to autism. The study was later retracted by the journal, and it was shown to be scientifically invalid, but the damage was done, and 20 years later, we are still fighting this fight. And this theme, I think, is going to come up throughout our episodes as we talk about ID Week, but behavioral science in vaccination efforts, in getting people to use antibiotics differently or appropriately, in stewardship efforts, humans are driven by fear far more than they are by logic. And so like Dr. Salvana said, like we're losing the battle just by coming at them with data and with science. We have to somehow change their mind and, and, and touch their hearts. And we have to connect with people to change that conversation. This is somewhat unrelated, but I think as a clinician, this stood out to me very much so last year. I This patient changed my life. Um, so I had a patient I'm very, so in the stewardship space right now, obviously penicillin allergies, huge conversation, right, Ryan? There was, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 posters on penicillin allergy initiatives at ID Week. Absolutely. So de-labeling people with penicillin allergies, using more beta-lactams, this is kind of a common theme. So uh, about a year ago, I was in the emergency department. I had a patient in the ED, and she had a penicillin rash. And they wanted to give her Augmentin and send her home. And that was the best choice for her at that time, like three to five days of Augmentin. And it was going to be great. But she had this rash. I was like, you know, I bet this happened as a child. Let me go do a penicillin allergy interview on her and save the day. So I go to interview this lady. We talk through it. And sure enough, distant, distant rash, mild, has tolerated cephalosporins. And I tell her, you know, give the whole spiel on percentages and less than 1% and, you know, you can take Augmentin and we want to do the best thing for you. This patient looked at me and she said, you know, I appreciate that, but my daughter died last year of phenytoin-induced liver injury, her 22-year-old daughter. And she's like, and that adverse event, I was told, was a one in a million chance or a less than 1%. And she's like, so I'm sorry, but I have a very significant fear of any kind of chance at all. Yeah. And I was like, that I mean, what do you say to that, right? And then I ended up sitting on this lady's bed for a really long time and talking her through that and honestly thanking her for that perspective because people are people. And that one in whatever is like is someone's daughter or someone's son or someone's mom or someone's father. And so we have to – and that's obviously different than the vaccines because zero vaccines cause zero autism – or zero numbers of vaccines cause zero cases of autism. So there's no chance in this. And so it's a little bit of a different story. But – 
And just understanding where patients and people are coming from when we're talking science to them, I think is what we need to do to start to change the story and to make an impact and to regenerate um, inspiration around getting vaccinated and a lot of other things that we want people to do in healthcare. Yeah, Erin, that story tells us all why you are such an exceptional stewardship pharmacist. And it's because your perceptions have been changed by your interactions with patients. And that's something we really have to appreciate is that patients are driven by this fear. That's why these things are so important now, because you can see once the seed of doubt is out there, as, as fictitious as those data have been, uh, have been proven to be, the seed of doubt is out there. Patients gravitate towards that, and it's really hard to start changing that mindset, which means it's really hard to also start changing the way people perceive vaccinations. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. Um, but to get to the science a little bit, because um, so Dr. Hoetz started, and if you haven't read the book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, very compelling information on what we're currently facing in a world of vaccine hesitancy and how we can hopefully communicate um, with people to help them make more informed decisions and, and better decisions for really the entire entire world. But there were two other great speakers. So I do want to close out with some of the science they brought to the table. I learned a lot of things about vaccines here. It's really interesting. So um, Dr. Anthony Fossey, he discussed vaccine development for emerging infectious disease threats. And this was neat. So there's kind of three approaches. So there's a priority pathogen approach. And we saw this with anthrax. So anthrax right after September 11th, obviously became a bioterrorism hazard and so launched all this efforts into vaccine development. And so that would be an example of you're developing a vaccine for a priority pathogen. The next approach was what we call a platform approach. So this is basically saying that we need to more expeditiously address the challenges of new diseases that come out that we weren't anticipating. So Zika would be an example of this, um, that we didn't anticipate this wasn't a priority pathogen list and all of a sudden it's a public health crisis. So we need to have a better way to develop vaccines than isolating, growing, attenuating pathogens in this long labor-intensive process. So how can we do things like what they're doing for Ebola right now, where they're using DNA and RNA platforms, which include viral vectors and trying to develop vaccines for that for that disease faster. Or recombinant proteins, nanoparticles, they're looking at nanoparticles to design a universal influenza vaccine, really compelling research. And so that's what they're trying to look at these different vaccine platforms. And then finally, there's a prototype pathogen approach, which is where we have, we use an experiment we have with one pathogen. So this was successful with this pathogen. And then that allows us to take that prototype and more quickly and efficiently move when there's an emergence of a new pathogen in that same group. And the example um, that Dr. Fossey gave was flaviviruses or the flava genus was so we had really good experience with yellow fever. And so then if other diseases emerge within that genus, can develop the vaccine using the yellow fever prototype. And then finally, to close out this session, Dr. Penny Heaton talked about developing vaccines for poverty-related diseases, basically making the call on a global scale that all lives have equal value and that we need to make medical advances, not just in America and not just in other developed countries, but everywhere. Um, and gave a shout out to the Bill and Melinda Gates Institute, who are doing incredible work to try to eradicate tuberculosis and malaria and diarrheal diseases in children and reduce adverse birth outcomes in mothers and in newborns. And so this new approach to finding disease solutions for diseases of poverty, um, basically nonprofit biotech firms that are trying to find, take their innovation, bring that to the private sector and, and develop all of these life-changing things. Vaccine development is hard, um, but there's a lot of people doing a lot of really great work in this space. 
Aaron, you're absolutely right. Vaccine development is truly difficult, and it certainly speaks to how far medicine has advanced that we're able to even develop vaccines against these new and emerging threats. Now, vaccines was certainly the big theme at ID Week this year, but let's transition out of that into some of the other big announcements. And this next one certainly hits near and dear to our heart in that SIDP, or the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, will now become the fifth partner organization to sponsor ID Week starting next year in October 2020 in Philadelphia. Now, SIDP will be joining the IDSA, HIV Medicine Association, the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society, and Shea as partners in developing material for ID Week 2020, where now SIDP will have a voice at the table to co-develop content with these great organizations that speaks to all the allied health professions, including pharmacists, physicians, and all of the other attendees at ID Week. Yeah, Ryan, it's really exciting. We're really looking forward to that collaboration and being one meeting, one voice um, in, in the infectious diseases space. One of the other big themes that outside of vaccination and these other big exciting announcements was, interestingly, medical education. So something new to me, I learned a lot about this and looking through this content, but there was a session by Dr. Emily Abdoller from the University of Michigan, and she presented an exploratory study of therapeutic reasoning underlying antimicrobial selections. This was oral abstract number 1946. So I let me. I hope I don't butcher this. I learned a lot in watching this talk and in, in going through all of the medical education content. And I think this ties really nicely in just how do we help people make better decisions? What drives people to make the decisions that they make, right? So clinical reasoning is a theory that tries to explain what we do when we go about taking care of our patients. So the whole process while we take care of our patients. And that process is data gathering, and then the physician synthesizes all of that info into what they call problem representation. And when you have that, then from there, you can generate a differential diagnosis. And within the differential diagnosis, there's actually a whole theory in in school that that studies this, um, but they call each differential diagnosis an illness script, which um, Dr. Abdoller likened to basically a folder. And she said, you know, you you come up with your differential, each differential diagnosis is an illness script, and you basically take one of these folders of possible diseases in your mind, and you're like, this is what this disease looks like. You compare that to your patient, and then you pick one, and you diagnose the patient. And that in, in this field is called script selection. And so this is actually what, this is actually diagnostic reasoning. Then there's this other kind of bucket of clinical reasoning called therapeutic reasoning, which is similar, but it's when you're picking the therapy. And so the diagnosis will then trigger you to decide, well, now I need to treat this patient and what are all my different therapies? And you need to make a choice in that regard too. And there's a lot less data and studies looking at this part of the process, the therapeutic reasoning part. So that's where a lot of these things that came to ID Week are emerging. And so you need to understand two things. One, what factors are contributing to the treatment selection? And then in the case of infectious diseases, how might the pathogen being introduced into the situation complicate whatever reasoning process you're going through? And and in, like in school, this is what we're absolutely terrified, right? Like when a preceptor is not satisfied with the right answer and they're like, why did you pick that answer? And you're like, 
I don't know why. And now, but that's now that's what I thrive on, right? Like learning the why behind things. Um, so I thought this was really intriguing. And so Dr. Abdullah's team basically were like, okay, we're going to investigate this decision-making therapeutic reasoning process that underlies an experienced physician's antimicrobial choices. And so they, they found that this was kind of an exploratory first step in like, this is the process we go through to make decisions, naming the syndrome, delineating pathogens, selecting possible antimicrobial selections, and all of the different characteristics of the patient, of the case, of the world that go into making the best decision. And so... In the future, what they want to explore and compare is to see that if teams, in particular if pharmacists and physicians, will make better decisions together than either group alone and how we can educate on that therapeutic reasoning process. If you're interested in this and you want to join a group to collaborate and share this content, you should check out the Infectious Diseases Educator Network or the IDEN. This website is iden.ucsf.edu. There's also a growing medical education community of practice within the IDSA that all IDSA members can join. Excellent information, Aaron. And speaking of medical education, we have to talk about this session that was led by Drs. Jasmine Marcelin and Kelly Calcutt from the University of Nebraska Medical Center where they talked about how they're now starting to leverage social media to have professional success. Now, certainly they've been a couple of the pioneers in this field, and really in this session, they kind of walk through their anecdotal firsthand experience on how they've come to be leaders in this field. But I think the part that really resonated with me in hearing about their experience is they talked about the personal return on investment, or ROI. So why should you invest time into something like Twitter? We're all so busy. We have so many things going on. What does it do for you? And so beyond those things of the, that are at face value, I think the other thing that clinicians listening to this podcast have to appreciate is that now these kinds of social media presences are being incorporated into things like promotion and tenure at different universities. They mentioned that Mayo Clinic is one of the pioneers in this and that they actually look as part of a promotion package, what is the social media presence? So we know certainly being available on social media helps with all these collaborations, but I think it's also important to highlight that if you publish articles or you're a researcher, putting them on social media helps the visibility of that article. And so if more people see it, more people cite it, and this tangibly increases things things like the H index, which go directly onto your promotion documents. And these all, all these things help with these alternative metrics or alt metrics that get your research more visible. I think the other thing that's important about social media that that the University of Nebraska has become a leader in is they now offer protected time for their faculty to advance social media for their division. This is something that we've started doing at the University of Pittsburgh as well with ID Pitstop, at ID Pitstop. And this is something that now is becoming very important for divisions, not only for recruitment, but also to get visibility out there of all the great work that faculty members are doing in their division. The final thing that, that Kelly, Dr. Kelly Calcutt pointed out, and I think this is a picture that resonated with me, is she had a picture in her slides of, of her kitchen. And in her kitchen sat this stack of journal articles still wrapped in plastic, never touched. And I'm like, I can totally resonate with that because I get CID in my mailbox every month and unfortunately it goes directly into the trash because I see everything I need to see on Twitter first. So much so that now we have this active competition. I try to find articles that Erin actually hasn't seen on Twitter before me. And every time I bring a new one, she's like, yeah, dude, that was on Twitter like three hours ago. 
This is definitely a one-sided competition. Just This is the first time I'm learning that we're in a competition, just so everyone is aware. But I'm just trying to share the love, man. I'm trying to I make just, it a competition? I just like to learn. I just like to share what I learn with you. <laughs> All right. So there's the curveball for Erin. Let's see what else I mentioned in this podcast that she's not ready for. Um, okay. So transitioning out of Twitter, I think certainly go check out the talks by Dr. Drs. Marcelin and Calcutt. They've been pioneers in this field. If you're looking for added evidence or reasons to join social media and use this for your professional advantage, this is the talk that you need, to, you need to listen to. Now, Drs. Calcutt and Marcelin also use their social media presence to advocate for equity, diversity, and inclusion in healthcare. And I was very excited to see that ID Week promoted these issues as well by hosting a Women in ID breakfast at the meeting, as well as by inviting Dr. Julie Silver from Harvard University to speak about at the conference about closing the gender gap in medicine. And listening to her talk, what is certainly true in medicine, as well as infectious diseases, is that when you look at the data, undeniably women are paid less, they are promoted less often, they receive fewer recognition awards, hold fewer leadership positions, and are harassed more commonly in the workplace. Now, for me, like most of the men listening to these podcasts, these are facts that absolutely have to change. Personally, I am the byproduct of a strong professional woman who raised four kids, went back to college, and is now the vice president of a large healthcare system in Michigan. I am also married to a strong professional woman who teaches me every day about the struggles women have in the healthcare setting on being successful professionally, particularly if you have a family. And professionally, I am surrounded by women I admire and have mentored me to not only be a better person, but a better colleague and a better pharmacist, including the woman sitting across me in the studio today. So for me, being a bystander is not enough. I want to be an advocate, and I want to help spread the messages that Dr. Silver, Dr. Marcelin, and Dr. Calcutt are all helping us understand. And I think we can do that in really three tangible ways. And these are three ways that were presented at the meeting as well. Number one is to be aware of and support the Be Ethical campaign. This is a call to major leaders at, in four gatekeeper categories to prioritize and properly fund initiatives to close gender equity gaps. Not only to properly fund these initiatives, but to implement strategic new interventions to help close these gaps. These gatekeepers include medical schools, hospitals, and other healthcare organizations. They include medical societies and medical journals, as well as funding sources. So that's number one. Number two is be aware of another campaign, which I really, really think highly of, and that's called Need Her Science. And what this campaign does is it raises awareness to the fact that most medical journals, if you look at the editorial boards and the editors of these journals, they are mostly men. So as clinicians or researchers, when you're thinking about where to submit your manuscript for publication, perhaps first take a look at the editorial board and make sure that the journal has equitably included qualified women at every level within the journal. And finally, number three, I think we can all help to disseminate gender equity research. Whether this is through social media or at your local institution, I think the more we talk about these issues and raise awareness, the better off all of us are going to be. I really actually didn't know Ryan was going to do that, so I don't really know what to say now. Um, thank you, Ryan. That was that was really great. Julie's talk was amazing. Um, same with Jasmine and Kelly's. I think the 
what's happening in this space, it's really inspiring to me. They're all, I look up to all of them. And um, I think increasingly we're going to see a great work from both men and women um, as we continue. This whole theme of equity, diversity, and inclusion is is really, it's making us all, all better. Um, and I can say equally as positive things about the guy sitting across from me in the studio as well. So thanks, Ryan. It's, a, it's really, it's an honor to work with you. Um, now I'm getting emotional. Okay, so let's move on. Let's um, talk about, can we talk about data now? All right, so we're going to kind of ab- abruptly shift gears here, but I want to end this podcast by talking through the late breakers and the important clinical trials that were presented at ID Week. Um, so Ryan, I'm going to let you kick off. I want you to please teach me about Cefiteracol. All right, Aaron, I'm going to do my best. And certainly this was one of the late breakers that we were most looking forward to going into ID Week. This is called the APEX-NP trial. And this is an efficacy and safety study of cefiteracol versus high-dose meropenem in patients with nosocomial pneumonia. This is a randomized, multi-center, double-blind, non-inferiority study. And if, you remember, if you're wondering where the title came from, APEX stands for Acinetobacter, Pseudomonas, E. coli, Klebsiella, and Stenotrophomonas nosocomial pneumonia. So these are the target pathogens for cefiteracol, now, now evaluated in a randomized controlled trial against meropenem. So one of the first things to know about cefiteracol, obviously this is a drug we've talked about previously. It has a unique mechanism in that it chelates free iron in the environment using a siderophore to do so, and using then iron transport mechanisms to get inside the periplasmic space where it very much functions like a cephalosporin. Now, what's important about this study comparing cefiteracol to meropenem is this is one of the first randomized controlled trials of nosocomial pneumonia where they used six grams a day of meropenem. In fact, the comparator arm here was two grams every eight hours of meropenem over a three-hour infusion, something we would view then as a dose-optimized approach to meropenem. The primary endpoint in this study was a day 14 all-cause mortality with a non-inferiority margin of 12.5%. Now, we're used to and accustomed in these kinds of studies seeing an all-cause mortality at day 28. In this study, it was a secondary endpoint for what they were looking at. In both arms, patients who received cefiteracol or meropenem, both arms were allowed to receive linazolid for up to five days for gram-positive coverage, and in total, they randomized 300 patients into both arms. 148 patients ended up receiving cefiteracol, and 150 patients ended up receiving meropenem in their intent-to-treat analysis. Now, when I look at the baseline characteristics of patients in this study, a couple of things stand out to me. Number one, about 60% of the patients in both arms were ventilated at the time of randomization. So this is truly a ventilated, uh, a ventilated population with mean Apache 2 scores of about 16 in both arms. The next thing I'm looking at is, well, what were the pathogens that these patients had? The top four pathogens in order in this study were Klebsiella pneumoniae, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Acinetobacter baumani, and E. coli. And in fact, the one that stands out to me there is the Acinetobacter, where they actually saw about 15% of patients in both arms had Acinetobacter uh, as the causative pathogen for nosocomial pneumonia. Now, in their microbiologic intent-to-treat analysis, they showed that there was no difference in 14-day all-cause mortality. In fact, among 145 patients that ended up in this analysis for cefiteracol, the all-cause mortality at day 14 was 12.4%, compared to 11.6% among 146 patients who received meropenem. They similarly showed in their secondary endpoints that 28-day all-cause mortality, there was no difference between treatment arms. And in fact, they did a very nice sensitivity analysis for all the various subgroups, showing no difference in mortality either way. 
They other looked at another. They also looked at another important clinical endpoint. That's clinical cure at the test of cure visits. This is an important endpoint, particularly for European agencies when they're evaluating these drugs. And similarly, they showed no difference. Overall, clinical cure rates of 64.8% for patients who receive cefiterocol and 66.7% for patients who receive meropenem. Now, all this data looks good. This looks like your classic non-inferiority study up until this point. But also there was a sub-bullet point on the slides that I think is important for our audience to be aware of. They showed that in the cefiterocol arm, only 1.7% of patients had an isolate with cefiterocol MIC greater than 4, which is what we're extrapolating to be the susceptibility breakpoint for this drug. Comparatively then, 22% of patients in the meropenem arm had isolates from their respiratory cultures that had meropenem MICs greater than 8. So literally one in five patients in the meropenem arm were infected with carbapenem-resistant pathogens. So we had no more information about those cohorts or those subgroups in this study, but certainly this is something we'll be looking for as these data are published beyond just the top-line results that were presented at the meeting. So overall takeaways, I think it's important to show here that cefiterocol was non-inferior to meropenem. The study was overall well done, but we want to know more about these patients that had carbapenem-resistant pathogens and how this may influence the overall results of the study. So I can't mention the data that was presented at ID Week for Cefiterocol without at least mentioning the data that was presented the following week at the FDA where Shinogi took their FDA filing package uh, with Cefiterocol for their advisory committee. Now, importantly, the FDA filing document for Cefiterocol only included their prior urinary tract infection study where Cefiterocol was compared to imipenem and their credible CR study, which was a pathogen-directed study of carbapenem-resistant pathogens, this package did not include the APEX-NP data that I just outlined for you. Now, to make a long story short, what the FDA advisory committee did is they voted 14 to 2 in favor of approving cefiterocal for complicated urinary tract infections, but this is in light of the credible CR data that shows higher mortality rates in patients who receive cefiterocal compared to best available therapy in this credible CRM study. Now, we don't know more about the mortality at this point. It looks like the mortality difference is so far unexplained, and now we'll be waiting on the FDA to make a decision based on the advice from the advisory committee on whether this drug will be approved or not. Either way, whatever the FDA decides, I think we have to look at all the data as a whole, what we know from the UTI study, what we know from the late breaker abstract at ID Week this year with the pneumonia data, as well as the credible CR data. How can we put all these data together to best use cefiterocol as clinicians if this drug were to be approved? So stay tuned for more information on that front. Thanks, Ryan. I think that's really interesting. I think the credible data is gives us a lot of pause. I think we thought, actually, I quote myself on the ECMID podcast, I said, I can't wait to use this drug for non-fermenters. It looks like based on credible, that might not be the case. And so we'll be interested to see more data develop in this space and, and see what the FDA does with this drug. But moving on to the next late breaker trial. So this was Dr. Joan Manick from Rester Bio, and she presented the TORC1 inhibition with RTB101, so that is their compound, as a potential pan-antiviral immunotherapy to decrease the incidence of respiratory tract infections due to multiple respiratory viruses in older adults. I've realized late breakers have very long titles. 
But they absolutely do. They do. So basically, New England Journal of Medicine 2015, Jan and colleagues, um, they this was a really interesting paper that came out a couple of years ago, and it told us that community-acquired pneumonia is caused largely by viruses. In fact, top seven of causes of community-acquired pneumonia are viral, but the of the top seven viruses, the only one that has a preventable vaccine or treatment option is influenza. We have a lot of community-acquired viruses that cause a lot of illness. What do we do about them? Well, RestorBio was like, let's develop a compound, this RTB101, that can upregulate the innate pan-antiviral immunity to offer protection specifically in elderly adults and hopefully decrease respiratory tract illnesses caused by these viruses. And I love this concept. It's so optimistic in my mind. I love this. And it's like in the oncology space when checkpoint inhibitors first came out, it's like, let's not kill the bad thing. Let's make the good thing better. And I think it's just an interesting way to approach science to try to rev up the immune system as opposed to trying to kill the organism. So what is this? So TORC1 inhibition, what it does is it may increase your innate immunity because inhibition of TORC decreases what is called SREBP2 activation, and then that upregulates these innate antiviral gene expression, which is associated with protection in animal models. And they're like, that's really cool. We can move on to phase two. So phase two trial was to determine if TORC1 inhibition actually does upregulate innate immunity in humans and if this is then associated with decreased respiratory tract illnesses. And again, their study population was high-risk elderly adults. And so they had five different cohorts of patient populations. You had to be 65 or older to be in this study. And then they also had a group 85 and older, groups with asthma, type 2 diabetes, COPD, and smokers. And interestingly, they enrolled patients in the Southern Hemisphere and and then in the Northern Hemisphere. And they got 16 weeks of study drug during cold and flu season. And they did this also as a dose rounding study, again, phase two. And patients either got the TORC1 inhibitor, so RTB101, alone, or they received it in combination with everolimus or everolimus, I think. People pronounce it either way. I hate pronouncing drugs. Everolimus or everolimus, however you want to say it, um, which is another TORC inhibitor. So this is an mTOR inhibitor we use in transplant. And this is not the first time we're hearing about mTOR inhibitors with antivirals. And so we've seen patients with solid organ transplants and even bone marrow transplants that get mTOR inhibitors that have less CMV reactivation. So just very, very interesting. So the primary endpoint of this study was the percent of patients that had one or more lab-confirmed respiratory tract illness during the study period. There were three dosing strategies. So I said it was a dose ranging And this was really interesting. So the three different dosing strategies were given either once a day or twice a day because intermittent versus persistent inhibition of TORC1 may impact gene expression in a different way. And so long story short, TORC1 has this circadian rhythm. It's actually activated when you're eating and inhibited when you're fasting. As you age... TORC1 becomes persistently activated. And so the thought was that if we could turn down TORC1 inhibition to these younger levels, it may lead to health benefits in older adults. And so they found that. They found that the 10 milligrams daily, which was an intermittent inhibition strategy, was observed to reduce the incidence of laboratory-confirmed respiratory tract illnesses through week 16. And this was the only dosing strategy where this was significant. Um, They had a 5-milligram and a 10-milligram 
intermittent strategy, the 10 milligram was more effective. So they went with that on to phase three. Um, the BID dosing strategies, which were the constant inhibition, did not work. And so that kind of fits with how the, the rhythm and the natural kind of situation going on there. And overall, they saw a 30.6% reduction in RTIs. Now, interesting kind of things that were carved out. Patients with asthma and patients greater than 85 years old, very robust responders, 66 to 69% reduction. Patients with type 2 diabetes had a 15 to 40% response, but there was no response in patients with COD or in smokers. And they think that's because there was this preclinical data signal that smoking-induced inflammation is actually increased with TORC1 inhibition. So again, these signaling pathways in your immune system are very complex. And so smokers and COPD patients are excluded as phase three moves forward. But really interested to see what comes of that compound. Yeah, that's really interesting, Erin. You know, as pharmacists taking care of patients, I think sometimes we underappreciate the role that viruses and our host immune system play during pneumonia. And I want to keep going with this pneumonia theme now and talk about another late breaker clinical trial that was presented at ID Week. And this is a phase three randomized double blind study comparing tadazolid and linazolid for the treatment of gram positive nosocomial pneumonia. Now, the study design here I found really interesting because what they did is they compared tadazolid 200 milligrams intravenously once daily for seven days and linazolid 600 milligrams twice daily for 10 days. And the idea here, of course, is that short course therapy for nosocomial pneumonia should be just as good as longer courses. And perhaps there's some strategy involved here by showing that the newer option is just as effective as the existing option, but as a shorter course. Overall, the primary endpoint of this study was 28-day all-cause mortality with a 10% non-inferiority margin, and patients could obviously still receive concomitant gram-negative coverage according to each individual site based on their local epidemiology. Now, a very important secondary endpoint in this study was an investigator-assessed clinical response at the test-of-cure visit, which occurred about 7 to 14 days after the final drug final dose of the study drug was administered, and here they had a 12.5% non-inferiority margin. Overall, 718 patients received at least one dose of either tadazolid or linazolid, and this included 361 patients in the tadazolid arm and 357 patients randomized to receive linazolid. They also had a clinically evaluable population, which included 510 patients, broken down into 267 for tadazolid and 243 with linazolid. Next, moving on to the patient demographics, what's important about this study is that 100% of patients were ventilated. This included about 74% of patients in each arm that had ventilator-associated pneumonia, or VAP, and 26% of patients that had ventilated HAP, a term that's recently been made popular by the Aspect NP trial, also done by Merck. The population overall in this study was critically ill. Median Apache 2 scores were 19 in the tadazolid arm and 18 in the linazolid arm. And about 75% of patients received what they termed adequate gram-negative coverage based on any isolated gram-negative pathogens uh, during the study period. Now, speaking of those pathogens, overall, 178 patients that received tadazolid and 202 patients that received linazolid had qualifying gram-positive pathogens. Not surprisingly, more than 90% of these gram-positive pathogens were Staphylococcus aureus, and about 30% of the staph was MRSA. So let's jump right into the primary outcome of the study here. 
And at the 28-day all-cause mortality endpoint, there was no difference between linazolid and tadazolid. In fact, the 28-day all-cause mortality for patients that received tadazolid was 28.1% versus 26.4% for linazolid. So you're thinking, okay, tadazolid is non-inferior to linazolid for nosocomial gram-positive pathogens causing pneumonia. What do I make of this data? Couldn't I just give linazolid for seven days? How am I going to implement this as a clinician? Well, that's really where the curveball comes and where the secondary endpoints are really important for this study. Because as you'll recall, the secondary endpoint here is clinical response that was assessed by blinded investigators. And in fact, what they found when they looked at the clinical response at the test of cure visit in the intention to treat analysis, that tadazolid did not meet its non-inferiority margin as compared to linazolid. In fact, in the intention to treat analysis, only 56.3% of patients that received tadazolid had an adequate or good clinical response compared to 63.9% of patients that received linazolid. An overall difference of 7.6% and our 95% confidence intervals here pushed us outside of our non-inferiority margin. They found very similar results in the clinically evaluable population as well. Not surprisingly, because of the pathogens in the study, clinical success rates were largely driven by Staph aureus, where again, linazolid did better than tadazolid at this overall clinical response. So the authors, like many of us in the audience, were puzzled by this finding, and they did an exhaustive look to see if there was any confounding factors that might explain this unbalance between the two arms. They looked at everything from patient characteristics, severity of illness, microbiology, and even pharmacokinetic exposures, and ultimately the authors of this paper concluded that there was no single factor that could explain the observed imbalance in clinical cure rates between tadazolid and linazolid. So what do we make of these data? I think, first of all, we know that we have two drugs that are non-inferior in terms of mortality, but clearly there's a clinical benefit to linazolid. And I should also point out that this clinical benefit did not come at the expense of toxicity. In fact, both drugs in this study were relatively well tolerated, and there was no difference between either drug in terms of adverse treatment-related adverse events. So you have a clinical benefit with linazolid. Hmm. Well, I think what we can immediately take away is we probably shouldn't be using tadazolid at this dose for no gram-positive nosocomial pneumonia until we have more information. And I think to me what this study helps to generate is some important hypotheses. Is there a difference between seven days of treatment versus 10 days of treatment for staph pneumonia? Or perhaps are the exposures of tadazolid adequate within the lungs to achieve as good of a clinical response as we see with linazolid? These are a couple of very important questions that we we'll want to see answered as this study is published and future studies are done, again, looking at this idea of gram-positive nosocomial pneumonia is there a treatment duration issue, or is this a drug exposure issue? Something certainly that future studies hopefully can help us answer. Yeah, it's very interesting, Ryan. And you're like, man, I wish they had just treated them for the same duration so we could know what is really going on there. But um, moving into the last late breaker trial. Um, so this was Dr. Kevin Gary, who is an SIDP member. Um, he pre presented the results of the first inhuman phase one study of, quote, and this title takes three lines, I swear, these late-breaking titles are awful. I feel like Kevin well, not, may have done this on purpose. They're not awful, Kevin. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean that. It's a great title. But a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, single, and multiple ascending dose phase one study to determine, I'm already tired, the safety, pharmacokinetics, food, and fecal microbiome effects of ACX362E administered orally to healthy subjects. 
Um, That's a slide full. Yeah, man. Okay. But ACX3, I can't even say the drug name, ACX362E, that is the new drug. This is a novel mechanism of action. Very cool. Lots of new stuff coming out, which I like, um, new ways that drugs work. It is a DNA polymerase POL3C inhibitor for Clostridium difficile infection. And this drug's neat. So it's an ideal C. diff antibiotic because it has low systemic absorption, which gives very high colonic concentrations, which again is what you want for C. diff, right? And so this was phase one. So primary objective was safety. And then they also did systemic and fecal pharmacokinetics. And then very cool, um, they did a fecal microbiome analysis to look at the effects of ACX362E compared to vancomycin. And I guess taking a step back before we even get there, they did look in vitro at how these this drug compares to vanco and fidaxomycin, and it does have equal um, in vitro efficacy, so they felt okay proceeding to on with this drug. So they did a three-part study. Part one was a single ascending dose study of 50. 150, 300, 600, and 900 milligrams. Each patient gets one dose only. Part two, they looked at food effect and a crossover. And then part three was multiple ascending dose, so 300 and 450 milligrams. And then it's part three where they evaluated those microbiome changes. Long story short, the safety looked great. There was no real food effect and no dose-dependent effect. From a PK standpoint, only the 900 milligram dose achieved more than one microgram per mil in plasma. So super low systemic absorption, which is great. Um, Even with multiple ascending doses, nothing really got over this one mic per mil threshold. So it's very poorly absorbed antibiotic, super high colonic concentrations, ideal for Clostridium difficile. And the stool PK analysis they did showed that over 2,000 micrograms per gram of stool, even at the lowest dose of this drug. So lots of drug at the site. Now let's talk about this microbiome analysis, because I find this fascinating. So they they did this interve- intervention analysis, and they split the microbiome. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I totally said that wrong. So they asked the question, did, Kevin, your long title is like throwing me off still, but they asked the question, did the intervention, so did ACX362E or vancomycin, so a drug intervention to the patient, does that split the microbiome into different microbiome signatures? And they did this really cool way to look at this, and they looked at it at day zero, day five, and day 10. On day zero, healthy volunteers, phase one, no difference, right? Right, we'd expect that. Day five, you start to get a unique microbiome profile with vancomycin, but not really compared to ACX362E. And then by day 10, there is definitely a unique profile where vancomycin looks one way in these healthy volunteers and ACX362E looks different. So why is that, you ask? And then they explored that. What they saw is that ACX362E has much less killing of bacterioides, and bacterioides makes up to 50% of our microbiota. So ACX362E can officially be called a microbiome-sparing agent. And there was no difference between the two in Enterobacteriaceae killing, so this microbiome-sparing effect was driven by bacterioides. So in conclusion, they said there's no safety signals. The adverse events were very well tolerated and similar to placebo. It has ideal pharmacokinetics for C. diff because of the low systemic and high colonic concentrations. And in the microbiome analysis, there was minimal killing and a unique signal compared to Vanco. So that was very cool. 
really fascinating work, Aaron, because, you know, I think we're just now starting to appreciate the impact of the microbiome on not just infectious diseases, but health as a whole. So really fascinating and incredible work about this new product. I'm excited to see where this goes. Yeah, you're right. And actually, you saying health as a whole makes me think of one last thing. I'm sorry. This wasn't a late breaker, but I can I talk about this? I knew you were going to do this. Sorry. So yes, I really, the microphone is yours. This study was cool. Okay. So one last thing, health as a whole. So Shay has a session at ID Week where they have a featured oral abstract, and it's worth discussing. So this was presented by Dr. Alan Gross. He's a pharmacist at University of Illinois, Chicago. Um, he works with Dr. Katie Suda, and they're study was on the serious antibiotic-related adverse effects following unnecessary dental prophylaxis in the United States. So like dentistry, I have never thought of this, but you know what? Most antibiotic use is in the outpatient setting. Dentists prescribe 10% of all outpatient antibiotics. And in fact, antibiotics are the most common thing that the most common prescription that dentists write for. 30 to 85% of these antibiotics that are prescribed for prophylaxis have been found to be suboptimal or not indicated, which is, that's a lot of room to move in terms of optimizing patient care. So in 2007, 12 years ago, the AHA came out with prophylaxis criteria, and they narrowed this criteria for who needs dental prophylaxis. And they said, you need a cardiac condition, which is a prosthetic valve, previous endocarditis, certain congenital heart diseases, or a, cardio tra- a cardiac transplant with valvioplathy, and dental procedure that involves manipulation of gingival tissue, the periapical region of the teeth, or perforation of the oral mucosa. So cardiac plus dental procedure. Then in 2013, the ADA and the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons came out with also updated guidelines, and they said no to prophylaxis if you have prosthetic joints. So only these cardiac plus dental procedure patients. So In May of this year, this same study group kind of published their precursor to this abstract. The primary author on this paper was Katie Suda. It's in JAMA JAMA Network Open. And um, they looked at 168,420 dental visits associated with antibiotic prophylaxis. 90.7% of the patients had gingival manipulation. So like, okay, from the dental procedure part, they all rule into prophylaxis, but only 20.9% had a cardiac condition. So 80.9% of the prophylaxis was unnecessary. 81%. Like that's crazy. So the question becomes, okay, we are way overusing dental prophylaxis. It's unnecessary. But what is the harm of a single dose? Because dental prophylaxis is usually, you know, two grams of amoxicillin times one or 600 oclinda times one. So they looked at a cohort that what was presented at ID Week was a cohort of patients from 2011 to 2015, and they looked at um, the Truven Healthcare Market Scan commercial claims data and then Medicare supplemental database, so a lot of data from these patients. And they looked at a dental visit occurring within seven days of each other was considered one single episode. So like if the patient had to go for, you know, initial and then they had the procedure and those were four days apart, that was like one episode, which is how they kind of teased out some of the confounding. Patients were included in the study if they received an antibiotic course for less than or equal to two days for prophylaxis only and only if the prophylaxis was unnecessary. So they had... 136,177 patients. So that was the 80.9% of their original 168,000 that got um, prophylaxis. 
Their primary endpoint was any adverse event within 14 days post-prescription, and this included an allergy, anaphylaxis, Clostridium difficile infection, or an emergency department visit. The secondary endpoints were the risk difference between patients who received amoxicillin and clindamycin. Um, I actually learned from Dr. Suda that dentists are the number one prescriber of clindamycin in the outpatient setting. So this was, I thought, very interesting. So again, we're looking at 136,000-something patients. The rate of serious adverse events was 4.1% when they used this broad definition for allergic reaction and 1.3% when they used a more narrow definition. Either way, one dose of antibiotics was associated with a 1.3 to a 4.1 risk of a serious adverse event. Yeah, and just incredible. It's amazing. And that is only if they sought medical care wow. because they only captured these data using ICD codes. And so that's like crazy because how many people sit at home and have an ADR and don't tell anyone? Would right? never tell, yep. One dose. Particularly their dentists. One dose. And Clinda was associated with more adverse events than amoxicillin. In fact, a 30% relative risk increase when they use that broad definition of allergy and a 20% risk increase, relative risk increase when they used the narrow definition. And so there were some limitations. I mean, they said there's they can't actually attribute the prescription to a prescriber. They associated it with dental visits, but, you know, the surgeon could have prescribed it, although they said in their work it seems like dentists are prescribing. Yeah. And they only included patients with commercial dental insurance. What do we learn from this? Dental stewardship has huge opportunities. It also has a lot of challenges. I mean, dental records don't communicate with medical records. A lot of dental clinics don't even have an EHR. Again, prophylaxis decisions can be driven by a lot of providers. Um, and, and again, the patient may request this. So having these conversations back to what we started with of involving the patient, what drives them. If a patient's been taking the prophylaxis before every dental visit for 10 years, and then all of a sudden we say, no, you don't have to do that, even though we've been telling you for 10 years you have to, because we know we have new guidelines, but the patient might not understand that. So involving them in this conversation of stewardship as well. Um, but this is amazing work. And I think up in Chicago, they've started implementing some of this in their outpatient dental clinics and seeing positive results and improved prescribing. Yeah, this is really phenomenal work led by Dr. Katie Suda. So Kudos to you, Katie. But literally, Aaron, I think we're about to get kicked out of this studio, so we better wrap up this episode. We are, in fact. We get kicked out in one minute. So um, thank you, guys. We hope you enjoyed going through the late breakers and some of the big themes at ID Week, and we hope you join us for episodes two, three, and four as we walk through even more data and have some um, special features of the podcast. Again, I'm Aaron McCreary, joined by Ryan Shields, and you're listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. 